Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am thrilled to have Holly Mann on the show. Holly is a yoga teacher, writer, and mother living in the beautiful Box Canyon of Telluride, Colorado. In 2018, she left a career as a professor of political theory at University of North Carolina to move out west with her family. She has been a writer, educator, consultant, and yoga instructor for 15 years. Her writing tends to focus on the intersection of politics, philosophy, and moral life but she has written on subjects as diverse as gender equality and high tech, the upcoming 2020 elections, and the golden era of Hollywood. Welcome to the program, Holly. Thank you so much, Marla. You're welcome. So I just wanted to let the listeners know I met Holly um, in Telluride. She's my favorite yoga instructor. (laughs) And just going to her classes, um, I just love what you bring into the class and Gosh, it's not even into the class, it's into my soul every time I take one of those classes. So I was, um, I just knew the first time I, I attended one that I really wanted you to have, to have you on the show. So I'm really honored that you, you were able to make it. So wow, what a, what a bio. So you had a career of political theory at UNC. And um, you left to move to Telluride. So, and I know you have two two children, right? I I, I have five children, actually. You have five children. Okay, five. Well, well, you tell us about that. So, tell us about that and how this transition came about. And there's that word again, transition. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about that. So, um, I, I actually should say that I had a whole other previous life to be an academic. <laughs> Um, which I think is relevant to understanding sort of um, a lot about the way that I teach and right. um, what moves me as a teacher and my my comfort in that seat of the teacher. And that is that I actually grew up as an actress. Oh, really? So I didn't go to university until I was in my mid-20s. And I had tutors growing up primarily um, I was in and out of the sort of traditional classroom in schools, but I was primarily a, a performer, a stage actress. Interesting. Were you? Did you sing, or you were you were an actress, or what? Or did you do it all? Well, I, I was a singer and an actress. Definitely not a dancer. Yes. <laughs> Much to many many um, directors' disappointments. Um, I was not a dancer, but I. That kind of surprises me, actually. I know, and this is, <laughs> I would always show up for auditions, and and people would look at me and think, "Oh, what? She's going to be a fabulous dancer." But I actually have two left feet. So, um, uh, I mean, yoga has probably helped a little bit in that department. But yes. In any case, um, I was discovered sort of singing the national anthem at a baseball game 
uh, as a young child, I was nine, and then started acting from there. And when I hit my mid, and I had like a whole long kind of complicated early career in the theater, nice. um, that sort of when a lot came alive for me spiritually, um, sexually, um, and I would say um, morally and later intellectually when I left um, the theater and went to university, I kind of left that world behind and became more right. of a, took the path of a philosopher and an intellectual. And, um, but I still carry a lot of that with me. If you've been in my classes, you know, there is this sort of theatrical musical component to my classes. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit. I am now you've, you've struck my curiosity. Um, so how was that growing up as an actress and, and, because you hear all different sorts of things, you know, that, that children when they're in that field and homeschooled and this and that. Um, did you feel that it brought a spiritual component to it too, with just the energy? I mean, is that where that all sort of started? I mean, definitely for me. I mean, I grew up in the church. I was in, my mother is Southern Baptist um, and then Baptist. She sort of just became Baptist and my father was Episcopal. So I grew up in the church, uh -huh. I grew up in the theater as well, which is a very liberal sort of progressive, open, free-spirited space. Um, but much of my work in theater was spiritual and actually in the sense that something very um, powerful spiritually happens to me, a kind of transcendent moment always when I'm on stage when I was on stage, nice. particularly if there was music involved. And my favorite role ever was actually playing Agnes and Agnes of God, which is the role of a young nun who becomes mysteriously pregnant. And there's this like whole psychological religious drama around her pregnancy. It was a film with Jane Fonda and I think Meg Tilly or Jen, one of the Tilly girls played. Oh my gosh. I have to. We'll it's watch. a fabulous film. We'll put that in the show notes. It's a fabulous <laughs> film. Um, but in any case, and, and who else? Mother Superior, I think, was played by Anne Bancroft. This is a fabulous film. Any case, um, yeah, I mean, I think growing up for me in the theater was wonderful. I had a fabulous experience, partly because mm -hmm. I have really amazing parents who were not wacky stage parents, who were spiritually, yeah. socially grounded, very working class at that time, although our class status changed as I grew up. Um, but my father was an undercover narc and, and detective and my mother was a, worked for a bank and, you know, they were just supportive, but not crazy. Right. <laughs> um, right. And I grew up in a world where, you know, sexuality was fluid and, and, um, everything was fluid. Right. And it was free and, but also felt safe. I had a very close community in the city of Richmond and, and along the East coast that I, that nurtured me as a young performer. Right. all different stripes and colors and creeds and religious backgrounds and so it was a wonderful childhood yeah yeah that is just perfect you don't hear that very often you know just what you said it was so fluid in every single way yeah. yet so loving and so safe i <laughs> i can kind of understand why you're the person you are today now because it all begins you know as a as a little one is, as yeah. you know. So so let's then talk a little bit about your transition coming to Telluride and also when you you became so deeply involved in yoga because I'm always yeah. also so curious about how you know all those songs and mantras and yeah. san Sanskrit and all of that yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> so 
my partner and I have been coming to Telluride for many years in the summers. He is associated with a, a race here, was associated called the Hard Rock 100. It's yes. a 100 mile foot race through the mountains, right? Mm -hmm. He and I are both long distance runners, mountain runners. And we came here in the summers and knew that we wanted to land here one day full time. That happened sooner than we expected because we moved to California in 2018. Joe took a job, um, a, an executive position with a high tech company, and we decided I needed, I wanted to change professionally. I wanted to kind of get out of the academy, although for lots of reasons, and we wanted to raise our boys out west. And we spent less than a year in Palo Alto, and it just it was not for me. Right. And so we we moved here because we knew that it was in the plans. We just needed to speed it up. And that meant that Joe would be gone a lot more and I would be single parenting here in Telluride, which I do um, most of the time. Joe is gone. And we're going through our own interesting transition too, but we can set that aside. But just, just I'll just put that out there that this the, the transitions are many here coming to Telluride. Right, right. Um, but we are still a team in, in, a, in an important sense. Yes. And um. That's how I ended up here and my teaching really took off here. I started teaching yoga many, many years ago in the early 2000s in Chapel Hill. And I trained with a longtime teacher there who, who trained with Jiva Mukti. And then I did my own Jiva Mukti training and I've done other trainings in between. So, and I've taught in Chapel Hill um, for many years I taught there and took a year off in California and then started teaching again here in Telluride. And it's really resonated, I think, with folks here in a way that's been lovely for me to experience. Yeah. What is the Juva Juda Mukti? It's a method of yoga. It's called Jiva Mukti, and it means the one who is liberated in this lifetime. Nice. And the reason why that's significant is because G to understand Jiva Mukti as a method is to understand its name, which is that we are interested in how we can live a fully modern life as yogis, right? So we're not trying to sort of live some weird ascetic life that the ancients lived, and we're not waiting for some afterlife to be fully realized as self-actualized people. But we think we can achieve something like samadhi bliss in this life as married people, as broken-hearted people, as professional people, as parents, as, the, as householders, right? Or whatever it is. And so um, it's, it's deeply modern, but also very spiritual. Um, and you probably pick up on that in my classes, right? Yes. It has a hip vibe, but is also really devotional. And it's an important part of my teaching. Right. I love that part. I love the, the devotional part and the chanting. Which is also an important part of Jiva Mukti. It's very musical. Chanting is a big part of Jiva Sanskrit. Meditation is an important part of Jiva Mukti, a vigorous asana. So my classes tend to be pretty vigorous. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Although we were in a pretty vigorous class together this morning. <laughs> yeah, yes, we were. <laughs> uh, my class really wants to kind of bridge the sort of physical rigor of asana and yoga and the sort of spiritually rigorous devotional component of it. Right. So, so let's talk about that, the, the spiritual um, part of not only yoga, but bringing that into our modern, our modern lives. How do, how, do you, how do you balance that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, 
I think as a child, I always had a deep curiosity about God and um, a higher power and source. Mm -hmm. And for me, and I think for a lot of my students, look, a lot of students come to my class because they just love the playlist. They love the music and they love the kick-ass class, right? That's right. <laughs> right. But for me, the idea that there's something bigger, a larger force than me and you, and even me and you together at work is very comforting. It's a really important coping mechanism in my life. I mean, I'm also a philosopher and a skeptic. I mean, I was mm -hmm. trained academically as a philosopher, so I'm inherently skeptical, right? Yes, in yes. So there's a goodly amount of surrender and of suspending a lot of my skepticism that comes along with that devotion and faith that I find very freeing. And I think a lot of my students do as well. Absolutely. You know, they find that that giving of themselves over to something bigger and even being able over time to name it, whether it's a particular deity that they identify with or maybe returning to some concept or notion of God that they grew up with that they couldn't quite jive with when they were younger. Right. They find comfort in now. That happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and in class, I balance that by just offering what I can. I mean, I think as a teacher, a lot of my teaching is very... Um, I don't want to say spontaneous, but it's an, ex I want to give my students an experience. Right. Right. Experience and a like a transformative experience. In class. Yes. Yeah. Well, you definitely do. I, you said that so eloquently that I won't be able to <laughs> I'll rephrase it, but that, you know, you're a skeptic and a philosopher and it's good to be a skeptic. That means that you want to learn more and, but in, in class, not, but, and, in the classes and in your life, just feeling that some there's something bigger is so is so important and so comforting and brings you back to. I love at the end of the class, you always say, or usually at least um, in Shavasana that, and think about as you as you sit up or whatever that someone you know something bigger is holding you. Yeah. That always just like touches my heart because it just carries me throughout the day. And I'm going to get like Terry. It's just, it's just so beautiful. That's so nice to hear because you never know what will move a student. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's important as I come out of Shravasana, I feel supported by others in the room. Because we right. have such a community here in Telluride. Yeah. Very special. Yeah. But I feel there's something even deeper. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't have to do it all on my own. And some people, especially here in this town, is very mega. Uh, I have a friend who likes to use that word. Very hardcore in Telluride. We can do it ourselves, and we can. I've noticed that. that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. climb that mountain. Da, 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 da. But you know, I think a lot of us are craving um, a kind of feeling of being held and supported, and knowing that we actually don't have to do it all on our own. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so you're a mom and so tell me a little bit about your kiddos and what they, and how you're bringing that spiritual aspect into their lives. I know that you talk some about the mountain sprouts where they go to school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when I lived here, I worked there for a little bit. <laughs> I working with the little kids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful. And, but how you do that in your home and to help give them some 
inner strength and, you know, that sort of thing as they, as they get a bit older. Right. So, you know, for, for me, um, it's really, it's always been important that my children have a sense of, uh, like have a, the ability to sort of tap into kind of reverence for the divine. And that's Mm -hmm. true in nature. We spend a lot of time in the natural world. That's true in houses of worship where I take them frequently. When we're at home in Richmond, Virginia, where I grew up, we go to church. We, we also go to church here occasionally. Do I, people are always surprised to find this out about me. You go to church, like this is the crazy <laughs> thing about me. I go to church, the music's right. great. Yeah. I love, um, you know, I love to experience different forms of worship. Right, right. Um, and there are, there are some that too, you know, that resonate primarily with me. And then, but you know, that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy going to different places of worship. And I take my children to those places. Um, we pray at home, uh, we meditate at home, and the boys chant with me at home. Nice. Um, so they do a lot of home kirtan, and um, and they've grown up in yoga in space in yogic spaces with me, just right. coming along with me. I mean, it's not uncommon to see me. I don't know if you've been to class with me, but I frequently will have a child in tow. Um, yes. And that's just how they've grown up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about God and we keep it open ended because although I have my own, you know, crystallized in some sense conception of the divine of God and of deities that resonate, I don't want to, to project those onto or to force them onto my children. So we right. keep it open ended. We recently went through um, a death in the family, a very close painful death. My aunt passed away. My aunt, who was only a few years older than me. So the children knew her as someone young. In fact, she seemed younger than me. Right. So <laughs> we just this morning talked about Lisa, my aunt Lisa, who is in um, heaven. Now, you know, why do I use the word heaven? It's an interesting, you know, uh, people ask me this all the time. Do you really believe in a heaven? And then like, like we, like, you know, like we, one envisions in the new Testament, um, in the Bible, maybe, but you know, it's the language we have and frequently I'm just grasping at straws, right? I'm like just trying to find some language that might be comforting to my children. And that's just one, you know, way that I might talk about my own Lisa, but I might also say things like, She's within you and around you all the time and her memory lives on and she's in a better place because those are words that give children comfort. Right. Right. You know, so as they get older, they'll grapple with those concepts in the same way that I did over time. Yeah. Yeah. But what a great open, open space and loving space that, that you're providing, you're providing that for them. So you just mentioned really quickly, um, curtain that yeah. is, um, I, I find it unique in you as a yoga instructor. And so let's, um, could you just briefly talk, I know it's a devotional call and response chanting mm-hmm. and how you got involved in, in using that. Um, right. So as I said, it's an important part of the kind of yoga that I was trained in, Jiva Mukti. And my main teacher in Chapel Hill, her name is Allison Dennis, was a musician also. Jiva Mukti attracts very musical people right. to it for some reason. And so, you know, she would play the harmonium and chant in class. And and I was always, well, actually not always. The first few times I experienced it, I thought, oh, this is weird and uncomfortable. But it only took a few times. And I was like, man, this is really moving me on some level. Right. 
and felt very non-performative. So that's one thing that, you know, I left behind this performative part of my life when I left the theater. And kirtan is a way to sort of engage in with music and sound that is not performative, but mm -hmm. is a deeper practice of the heart. And um, I just picked it up from her actually. And then I taught myself, I bought a harmonium. I had it shipped from India. And um, you can get them here too in, in a couple of places, a few places in the States. And I just taught myself, I grew up playing the piano. So I, you know, I kind of knew a little bit about how to play the chords. Right. And um, I learned Sanskrit. I have a Sanskrit teacher, a couple of teachers. And I just started chanting in class. And I chant, it's, it's a big part of my home practice, Marla. It's, I would say it's the main part of my home practice. Right, right. Um, wow. What a great practice to have at home, especially with the kids and the energy and the... Yeah. And they just, it just, you know, the Sanskrit language is, as I always say to my students, you don't have to be a believer to experience the benefits of kirtan, of chanting. Yeah. You just have to make the sounds. Just raising the vibration. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's been really a, a lovely thing about coming to Telluride and people are really, I think, enjoying that. So it's yeah, curious yeah. and yeah. So I, I just love on your website, um, you do some writing and you recently wrote an article and you named it, I don't know if this is specifically, um, Grace, Love and R and Mooring, M-O-O-R-I-N-G. This is one of the quotes. Love is holy because it is like grace. The worthiness of its object is never really what matters. And that's by Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, one of my favorite writers. Yeah, yeah. And um, can you just talk a little bit that, about that article and what inspired you to write that? Yeah, I can't. I can. It's been a while since I've thought about grace and mercy and... Yeah. You say, I think grace is rather like a seed that is planted within us and is watered over time. If you're, if you're lucky by those who care for the, but for us, this is especially crucial when we are small. So that's, that's a little part just to jog your memory. Yeah. So grace for me, the, well, let me start with what inspired me to write this piece. I think it had a lot to do with our, our transition here to Telluride mm. and a lot of um, so many wonderful and beautiful aspects of this transition that were, have been washing over me since we moved here and also so much loss and, and uncomfortable, painful transition in my home life. And um, that I think I was thinking a lot about the ways in which Beauty and suffering sit, as I say in the piece, right alongside one another. Yes. And if we have been attuned to grace, as I hope and believe my children are, you know, in Telluride and in Mountain Sprouts in particular, um, we're able to see this in a particular way, that grace is a disposition, an orientation to the world. And you, you experience it by when you are able to feel and see beauty and love all around, but also sit with the sadness in your heart, the sorrow in your heart, that is so often um, just a part of our human condition, right? Mm -hmm. As you know, more than anyone, right? That you, what, what God or the universe gives you with one hand 
it can very quickly take away with the other. And I've been experiencing a lot of that in, as I get older and it's not just acknowledging sorrow. It's being able to see beauty at the same time and um, to sit comfortably with that. Right. Um, so that's what inspired me to write that piece. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful piece. And um, I, I agree with you that it's, I mean, you have a choice when you have that deep suffering or any suffering, which we all do. And it's, I feel it's so important to choose joy and not fear in your right, be able, be able to sit with that. Because I believe that, um, that we're here for, and I, I know you do too, you know, this is a school. We're here to learn lessons and the suffering is just as important as the joy, as much as we, I would do anything not to have this sort of suffering, you know, I've had and many have had, but it's, it's part of why I'm here. It's, it's lessons for me to learn. So I always try to remember that, that just trusting in, in the divine plan, you know? Yeah. 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 Right. Trusting in that divine plan. Right. And knowing that, um, everything, I mean, there are some sorrows that, that will stay with us all of our lives. Right. They change the nature and the nature of love changes and the nature of beauty changes. And um, that everything is a moment, you know, in our lives. And that's a very yogic principle. And to really understand that on an embodied level is to really be an evolved yogi, Mm -hmm. one who is pratishtayam, really established in the practice. Everything is a moment, you know. And um, as a parent, you know, you have to really hang on to that. Yes. The, the good and the bad, right? Or the challenging and the easy parts, right? Yes, you do. You'll love, um, I interviewed Dr. Raymond Moody um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was the person who coined the in, a near-death experience, but he, you'll love this as an actress. And he said, you know, life is, is a drama, you know? It's just, we are the actors on the stage mm-hmm. and we're just playing out this drama and learning these lessons. And I think about that sometimes when I'm somewhere and I'm getting kind of caught up in, you know, earthly stuff. And I just think, I'm just the actor. I'm, yeah. this is the actress I am now. And yeah. next time I'm, I'm going to be another actress, you know, and just right. kind of get, get back and touch with, touch with my authentic, my soul. Right. In yoga, we have a word for that. It's called lila. Lila. Yeah. The lila is the play of life. And it's yes. mentioning, it has a double meaning, right? The play of life as in the performance of life, but also the playfulness. Yes, the playfulness. Yeah. So what are the greatest lessons your children have taught you? Definitely that everything is a moment. <laughs> everything is a phase, right? I mean, everything is a phase from this particular sleep cycle to, you know, this particular habit or tick or right, you know, right. challenging thing. Uh, so that's one lesson that they've taught me. Um, they've also taught me or reminded me that I too am a child in this world. And to be invited by your children to play in a, in a way that only a child can sort of initiate, right. it's been such a gift for me. I'm not a particularly playful person by nature. I'm an only child. I grew up with an alcoholic father. Um, 
and mm-hmm. I grew up very quickly, you know, and in the, th- I had a profession too at a very young age. And so right, right. Um, it doesn't playing doesn't actually come natural to me. And so my children have really opened this up for me. That's been a wonderful gift. And wow. I'm a child yes. too in this world. Right. 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 Um, that's been great. And of course, like just cultivating patience, endless patience. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, and we have five children in total because my husband has three older children and they've been in my life since they were very young. And I've learned from him and them together that every child is, I mean, you, you can know this cognitively, right. And you right. can study it, but to know it experientially, every child is different and requires a different way of parenting is a big lesson for me. You know? Yes. Um, they're each so unique and yeah. and as someone as someone said you know they're not like a piece of clay that you can mold and make make the way because I interviewed I inter- I had an interview and they were talking about their own child and to look at or no they were talking about the Balinese ch- children how they were raised in Ambali okay. and it's a very spiritual place and how they looked at children in the darkness and the light. You know, you have to have both sides. You can't just pick out that one little part of what you like about the child. That sounds terrible, but we do. I mean, yeah, we get them, we, yeah, we praise them for the things that we like because then they take away that one aspect and try to make it them and the rest of it, you know, is a bit lost. Yeah. And, and you don't want to do that. We, we have to celebrate every single little part of them. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the, all of the nittier, grittier parts. Right. Right. So Holly, what do you do when you do get like kind of downtrodden or a little bit, you know, how we all have kind of have those days being the yogi and the beautiful soul that you are, what, what do you do other than like your chanting? I was going to say I chant. <laughs> no, well, that's good. Uh, that's I, good. I'm, you mean what to say when I'm sad or down or just yeah, struggling? Yeah, just to get you kind of back on back on track. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would say there are a few things that immediately bring me back to a place of santosha, contentment, being outside, no yeah. matter the weather, no matter the just being out in the natural world helps me. But being in the good company of very fine writers helps me. Mm-hmm. So reading is a place where I will go. And then writing, right? Writing for me comes out of reading. So mm-hmm. I tend to go inward for sure. Being outside by myself, reading. Well, I say inward, that being in the company of writers is a way of being both alone and in good company. Right, right? absolutely. And then I write. So a lot of my pe- the pieces that I've written lately have come out come come from not dark times but just you know times when I've been struggling right, I think right. writers actually have a hard time writing when they're happy yeah because we want to do what we do other things you know right. um, I've never also, thought of that before yeah, yeah. we want to do other things you know it makes, <laughs> it makes sense even if you're a writer you're not a writer you're just journaling you know just journaling just, right yeah. you journal most frequently, you know, if I look back through the journals of my life, it's when I'm struggling or sad. Right, right. You get like very moody, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I also call my mom. My mom and I are. Aww. 
you know, I call my mom and, um, and I suddenly feel like I'm okay. I'm yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Being, being held again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. So let's talk about eternal life and unconditional love. And I'd like for you to what would share what wisdom you have from your teachings and how you love. And you say that um, in your bio, it is my intention to integrate the principles and practices of yoga into all areas of my work and life and to uplift others by way of teaching and living out those principles and practices in our shared messy, I love that word, modern world. So I don't know if those two questions really go together and <laughs> I'm looking at them, but they kind of do. So can you just, can you just speak to that? Um, speak your, to your teachings and unconditional love and yeah. an eternal life that, that life is a continuum and, and yeah. goes on the energy goes on forever. Yeah. Our energy goes, I mean, our energy goes on forever. Our teachings, when we instill them in others, and then they pass them on and they pass them on and they pass them on these things. You know, we're always planting seeds. We're always planting seeds Right. and you're planting seeds, you know, that grow into something, you know, beautiful and powerful. And, you know, hopefully you don't always know what your seeds will become, but we're always planting seeds. Yeah. And for me, being a yogi in this modern messy world means a few things, but primarily I would say I try to always have my thoughts my words and my actions aligned. And that sounds simple, but it's not. It's so not. often in this life, we are saying one thing, doing another, or even thinking one thing, saying something else and doing another. And not out of malicious, a sort of malicious intention always, but just out of a thoughtlessness or a carelessness or insecurities or fears, fear so often. And so I really try to both be playful, be sarcastic, have fun, but also really live an authentic life where my thoughts, words, and actions are aligned. And so right. when you're talking to me, you know that I say what I mean and I mean what I say. And I feel like that is the most powerful thing a teacher can ever do. Absolutely. So I always wow. do that. Yeah, to walk through in life, through life like that. Because you're right, it's not, it's not always easy to do. It's complicated. Right, right. <laughs> Especially, you know, you know, this is regional too. I mean, like maybe if you grew up in a really spiritual place and everybody's wide open all the time. Right. Okay. But even people there have layers. We're complicated. Yeah. But I grew up in the South where there are many, many layers. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we, but the Midwest has a different way of, you know, um, you know, you're taught to keep things in to yourself and to present one way and be. So um, I try to really live an authentic life yeah. and a life that is meant to be in service always. Mm. And that's how I live my life. Yeah. I try to always be in service to others or of service and to be compassionate and loving. With your and children watching your yeah. every single step. Right. right. Yeah. Do I do it perfectly every time? No. <laughs> um, but I, but I need to see that too. I'm yeah. honest about my mistakes. Yes. Um, and my children learn from that. They learn from me saying, hey, I'm really sorry. I said something I shouldn't have said, or I did something I regret that I regret that I did, right? Uh, sometimes I think that's even more powerful than yeah. doing it right. Oh, you know? for sure, yeah. right? Yeah. And also for them to see 
you um, learning new things too, you know, with your writing and your music. And I think it's, I think it's, I don't think, I know it's important for, for children to see our like, our childlike selves. I always say that young children, they help us remember. They re help us remember who we truly are. Yeah, that's yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I like that in the questions that you sent to me yeah. because I was like, what do they help you to remember? Right. I, how you were, how, you know, going back to that source, that, that wonder, that awe, how they can stare at a, a little, you know, grass, grass, whatever you call it. Yeah. <laughs> some wet, some wet, wet grass with a butterfly for hours, just right. in wonder and awe. That's what they help us remember, I think. Yeah, and and yeah. to slow down, right? To be unhurried, right? I mm. love to see a mother walking into school late with her children, unbothered. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the best just... thing for me, and I try to always be unbothered. You know. Right, because what's more important that I got my kids to school at exactly you know eight ten, right. or that we had some nice moments together, and well, what could well be our last? Yeah, yeah. you know, last morning together. So yeah. okay. I I really try to live like that. Yeah. Well, Holly, we have to wrap it up, but thank you so much. And are there any? Is there anything you'd like to say that? that I forgot to ask you or that I just didn't ask I, I don't think so. I feel really honored to have this conversation <laughs> with you and just to have a good quality conversation is a rare and beautiful gift. So yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure I'll see you soon in yoga class. I can't wait. It's nice okay. to meet you outside of class. Take okay. care. Okay, have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.